Well, I'm just going to, again, I don't normally preface my sermon this way, but I'm going to preface my sermon this way. Normally, we've been camping out in just like a particular text, even with a uh, the topical series we're doing right now on hope. I've just usually picked a text and just preached that text as it relates to hope. But this morning, we're going to be all over. This is kind of a, a theology of hope for sinners. I think one of the most interesting de- descriptions of God in the Bible is the one that Paul gives in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, where Paul describes God as the God of hope. I wonder if you think of God, God the Father, God the Creator, God the the Father and Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ as the God of hope. Earlier in, in our series on hope, I gave the following definition. Hope is a settled conviction of the future fulfillment of the promises of God. If God is the one who both gives the promises and secures their fulfillment, he's the one who assures their fulfillment, then our confidence, our hope, is only as good as his character. Hope only makes sense if God himself is trustworthy. Which is why we need this truth, which is one of the central truths in Scripture, that God is faithful. That means no matter what life looks like, no matter how I feel at a given moment, I can trust that the Lord is at work bringing his perfect and sovereign will to pass. And and his will is bent towards the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what Romans 8.28 says. That's important for us to know because there are times in life when we feel abandoned by God. We feel alone. When you sit, as it were, with Job on the ash heap, despairing, trying to decide if you're more miserable because of the circumstances in your life or the pain on the inside or the fact that you've got these miserable friends who can't comfort you in the midst of it. Those are hard times. Times when hope is not just wanted, but needed. There's another class of circumstance when hope is in even more desperate need. And those are the times when you know that that heartbreaking circumstance or that desperate circumstance, the the place where you're sitting, is your own fault. That's perhaps when we need hope most of all. Where can sinners find hope? Well, that's just what we were reading about. That kind of oblique circumstance in Ezekiel 16 The people of Israel had rejected God, and now God was going to bring their sins upon their head. They had been chosen by God from, he formed the nation. He's the one who created them. That's the image of finding them in in their blood, in the afterbirth, right? He, He chose Abraham, this moon worshiper from the land of Ur, gives him a new place to live, calls him to himself as his God, reveals the true God to him. And he he forms this people. He he gives them the gift of of marriage to himself, a marriage covenant and a land. And yet, yet his bride, the people of Israel, did not see those things as the gracious gifts that they were. God's kindness to them did not provoke the faithfulness and the love that they should have. Instead, Israel became proud, self-satisfied, and gave herself over to the nations around her welcoming in their false gods and their vile lifestyles. Now, we read a chapter like Ezekiel 16, and we are taken aback. I mean, can we 
Can we say those words out loud? Even in, especially in church, whoring prostitutes. And yet God speaks there through the prophet in that devastatingly explicit language. Further on in Ezekiel, it's going to get more explicit. In order to make clear the depths of Israel's depravity and sin, God uses the metaphor of a wife who pays other men to come in and ravage her, disregarding her husband, her marriage, her vows. And she doesn't even have the dignity of a prostitute because at least a prostitute would have got paid. And if that language offends your ears, it's because you don't see sin and idolatry for what they are. When you sin against God, you are paying other lovers to take what only belongs to God. Your obedience, your worship, these are things that belong to God alone. Earthly marriage, human marriage, is meant to picture that exclusive relationship. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, that, that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That this creation institution of marriage ultimately is designed to picture the exclusive one flesh intimacy of Christ and his church. And so the language of whores and adulterous wives is exactly appropriate when it comes to God's people choosing to turn away from him. When you sin, you are turning like an adulterous wife away from the covenant redeemer who has purchased you with his own body and blood. You're turning away from the one who gave everything for you. You're turning instead to lovers who only want to take. And this sort of rebellion brings about severe consequences if you persist in it. For the nation of Israel, it meant being carried away into exile. Verses 56 through 58 of that passage in Ezekiel 16 says, Was not your sister Sodom a byword for you? In the day of your pride. So like when Israel was exalted, she thought, oh, Sodom. Well, that's the place that God destroyed. You don't want to be like Sodom. She was a byword before your wickedness was uncovered. Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her. For the daughters of the Philistines and all those around despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. God brought the consequences of Israel's sin down upon her own head, though he had taken her to himself as a bride. This God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, according to Exodus 34, 6, is also a God who is righteous and will by no means clear the guilty, according to Exodus 34, 7. And we might hear that and we think, well, that's Old Testament. Well, like that's angry God the Father. We've got the New Testament, we've got Jesus, right? But this is the same truth as taught in the New Testament. Last week, we looked at Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, and, and how because we have a faithful God, we can have hope. But we must take action to keep hoping in him. So we gather together to worship and proclaim him. We gather together to encourage one another to remain faithful as we await the day of Christ's appearing. Because the consequences of turning away, we we take those actions to keep ourselves close to him. Because if we turn away, the consequences are severe. Hebrews 10 continues in verse 26, just starting right after what we read last week. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, the kids and I in, in Sunday school this morning were just looking at the story of Korah's rebellion in Numbers uh, six, 16. And the, these people, they rebelled against God. They rebelled against the, the authority that he had set up in Moses. And God literally consumed them with the earth and then fire. That, that seems to be what, what the writer to the Hebrews is alluding to here. And he says, Tur- turning away from the Lord is a terrible choice. And he, in his faithfulness, God in his faithfulness, will chastise those who turn away from him. Now, if you finally, like this is your final decision, you turn away from Christ, you refuse to honor him as Lord, you refuse to repent and to walk in obedience to him, then you can be sure of eternal consequences. Hell and then the lake of fire, Revelation 20 and verse 15 says. That's a sobering truth. We don't want to talk about that today. Probably not just today. Nobody's ever really wanted to believe that, right? But even if you are a child of God, you you haven't finally and forever turned away from Jesus. You are trusting him as your savior. You're genuinely born again. You are in Christ, and therefore there's now no condemnation. You're not facing the eternal consequences of hell and the lake of fire. This does not mean that your sin is free of earthly consequences. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 8, makes clear that if you are God's child, he will discipline you as a son. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3, says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And if you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons... My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Oh, we tend to think of, of love and discipline as these things that are in tension with one another, that they fight against each other. But here, the writer to the Hebrews makes clear that if God is disciplining you, he's doing so because he considers you his child, because he loves you. If he were to blissfully wink at your sin, just let you play around in your sin and stay there, coddle you in your sin, he would be treating you as an illegitimate child. Which brings us to the text in the bulletin this morning, Lamentations 3. It says 22. I'm going to actually start in verse 21. But to kind of set the scene for you in Lamentations 3, you need to understand that this book, it's called Lamentations because it is a long, sustained, five-chapter 
lament from the prophet Jeremiah over the ruins of Jerusalem. He'd prophesied for many years. He was sent as a young man to prophesy to the people of Israel, warning the people at large, warning the religious leaders, warning the kings of the nation of the coming judgment of God. And had they repented, had they turned away from their sins, God probably would have spared them. But they had steadfastly refused. I mean, multiple times they tried to kill Jeremiah. They threw him in a cistern. They would take his scrolls that he had had written with his prophecies on him, and they would burn the scrolls. They, They did not want to hear what Jeremiah had to say. They remained steadfast in the rebellion. And now Jeremiah, who is called the weeping prophet, because in this book he sits looking out over Jerusalem, And he weeps at the destruction that came because of the people's sin. Babylon came in in 586 and sacked the city of Jerusalem, broke down the temple, carried the people off captive, took away all the gold and the silver. All they left were the poor people in the land. Lamentations 1.1 reads, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. And chapter 1 verse 17 continues, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Again, five chapters we get of Jeremiah's sustained sorrow over the sin of his people and God's judgment upon that sin. We see Jeremiah's feelings about this in chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of gut-wrenching pain as you thought about your sin, the consequences of your sin, the sin and consequences of those you love. If you have, you're not alone. Jeremiah was right there with you. And you need to hear what he says at the center of this book because while the sustained tone of lamentations is lament sitting right at the center of this book is one of the most beautiful rays of light that we find in all of scripture in the midst of the darkness in the midst of the people being carried into exile and the temple being destroyed in the midst of god allowing his adulterous wife to be brutalized by those she sold herself to there is hope that hope is not to be found in the worthiness of israel herself or in the mercy of Babylon or any other nation or people. That hope is to be found in the character of God. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 21, says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So as we spend the rest of our time thinking primarily about this passage, I simply want to point out two truths. Number one, hope is rooted in the faithfulness of God. And number two, God in his faithfulness afflicts those he loves. First, hope is rooted in the faithfulness of God. Jeremiah is reminding himself that God is faithful. He's preaching to himself. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And this is a remarkable thing to say in the midst of a city that's lying in ruins. His mercies never come to an end. Do you ever look at your life and see only sorrow, only bleakness, only bad things? His mercies never come to an end. And to believe that requires a deep internalization of what we said earlier, that your sin deserves death. If Romans 6.23 is true, the wages of sin is death, and it's literally true, and it's true for you. Your sin deserves death right now, in the past, not just somewhere out there in the future. You deserve to die because of your sin. And if you do, if you believe that, then when you wake up in the morning, any morning, no matter what's going on, you can say his mercies are new every morning. Do you have anyone in your life who loves you? The answer to that is certainly yes. And if you don't think so, it's not because no one loves you. It's because you've become so self-focused that you can't see it. Now think about one of those people who loves you. Have you ever wronged them? The answer to that is almost certainly yes at some point. But they still love you. His mercies are new every morning. Do you get to experience sunshine, the rain, the breeze, the sight of green grass, growing corn, the glories of God on display in creation, the night sky? His mercies are new every morning. Do you know Christ who bore your sins in his body on the tree? Have you trusted him and received the rest of Romans 6.23, the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? Then you can say with me, his mercies are new every morning. We can get upset with people who want to remind us of God's faithfulness when we are in the midst of pain. And to be sure, there is a time simply to sit and weep with those who weep. We don't want to be the person in Proverbs 25, 20 who's singing songs to a heavy heart, who's like vinegar getting dumped on baking soda. We, we don't want to be that kind of festering in a wound. But there's a difference between singing silly songs to a heavy heart, which is just foolish and wrong. There's a difference between doing that and reminding someone of the only truth that can sustain you in times of sorrow and pain, namely that God is still on his throne and he is bent on using that almighty power for your good. When you are walking through deep water, you need the life rope of God's kind and loving faithfulness. You need the confidence that he can pull you through the deepest and darkest hole. You need confidence that he can pull you through anything. And that will only come, number one, if, like Jeremiah, you preach this truth to yourself. You wake up and you say, his mercies are new every morning. And number two, like we talked about last week, you have to put yourself around other people who will preach that same truth to you, whether you want to hear it or not. In our church covenant, the first section under the heading of the word says this. The word of God is the means through which the spirit convicts us of sin, calls us to repentance, delivers the good news of Jesus to needy sinners. So we commit 
to giving and receiving biblical teaching as the central act of our corporate worship. We commit to regularly read the Bible in our homes. We commit to counsel one another from the Bible. We need to always be feeding ourselves from the word and putting ourselves in position to be fed by others, the truths of God, to be reminded day in and day out of his faithfulness and of his mercy towards us. We we need to keep our noses and our ears and our hearts attuned to this book if we are going to hold fast to God in the midst of trial. Jeremiah believed that having God was more important than having a peaceful and easy life. Verse 24, he says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Though Jeremiah and his people were feeling the consequences of their sin, Jeremiah knew I can still look to the Lord and he will be my portion. He will be enough to sustain me and satisfy me through the darkest of times. It's only with this kind of hope, hope that sees knowing God as the greatest good, that we can truly benefit from his fatherly discipline. We need a faith and a hope that can endure God's chastisement, his punishment for our sins, his correction of our sins. Do you notice that rather strange-sounding verse, verse 27, here in Lamentations 3? It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. What in the world does that mean? And if you took that in isolation, it might sound like it's good to work while you're young because you're going to be too tired when you're old, right? <laughs> it, it is good to work when you're young. That's true enough, but as uh, the 19th century preacher J.C. Ryle used to say, certainly a truth, but it's not the truth of this text. This yoke that it's talking about in verse 27 is the yoke of pain, and we know that if we keep on reading verses 28 through 30, which say, it's good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth, verse 28, let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. It is good to bear the yoke of God's heavy hand upon you when you are still young enough to learn. It's one of the messages at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. There's certainly a sense, obviously, in in which if you still have breath in your lungs, you are young enough to learn from God. Praise the Lord, right? But if if you are sitting here no matter how old you are, you can, you can hear from him. You can learn from him. You can embrace his rule over your life. But it is also true that the younger you learn to find blessing in God's correction of your sin and his chastisement and begin to put into practice the habits of changing in response to his correction, the better off you will be. Happy is the man who learns to submit to God's authority in the days of his youth. This is why parents, especially Fathers are to instill discipline and respect for authority in their children because learning that lesson at home will save many years of sorrow. This is an uncomfortable truth for a lot of us to swallow. We don't like the idea that God may in fact be behind the pain we're facing in our lives. So we couch it in terms like he allowed this to happen. Some some people go so far as to say that God has to let bad things come into our lives because, well, there's human free will and God can't control that. We don't really have time to turn there this morning, but 
If that's kind of how you process things, I'd commend to you to just turn to Job chapter 1 and then Genesis chapter 20 and verse 6 and chew on that later on today or this week. Anything that comes into your life has been purposefully sent into your life by your heavenly father. And that may include some truly horrible things. But you must remember that his ways are far higher than yours. And those horrific circumstances, if those things in any way lead you to pursuing him or discovering him or seeking him, then having the Lord as your eternal portion will outweigh any tragic affliction in this life. The Apostle Paul, who walked through horrible, horrible things, beaten, stoned to the point of death, he said this light, momentary affliction is far outweighed by the eternal weight of glory that will come from knowing Christ and seeing his face forever. That boggles our mind. That can sound callous. But Paul was not speaking from a position where he did not know pain. Jesus is not speaking from a position where he does not know pain. He, he walked through a life like ours. He faced rejection like we do. He was abused. And then he bore God's wrath against our sin. He surely knows what is best for us and will allow us to walk through things that we don't understand. And we shouldn't misunderstand. Not every bad thing that comes into our lives is because of some specific sin that you've committed. Jesus absolutely rejects that thinking in John chapter 9. But nonetheless, we can experience each sorrow and trial and hardship as an opportunity to ask God how he wants us to grow, what he wants us to learn, how he wants us to grow in our obedience to and love for him. It's a new opportunity to cling to his mercy, knowing that we could never deserve his forgiveness and his grace. We can have this kind of confidence and hope in the Lord in the midst of every troubling circumstance, even those of our own making. Even in that absolutely brutal chapter of Ezekiel 16, the Lord promises to remember his people to establish a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, in which he himself will atone for their sins. And we know this is precisely what the Lord Jesus did in coming to earth. From heaven he came and sought his bride, laying down his life to atone for her sins, making himself the sacrifice. And now, in his resurrection life, he sends the Spirit, giving his bride a new heart, which means unlike unfaithful Israel, we in the church age truly have the ability as we are chastised to repent and grow, to walk not in sustained disobedience, but to constantly receive his compassionate, steadfast love and increase in our sanctification, increase in our Christ likeness. As sinners, we find hope not in ourselves and not in circumstances out there, we find hope at the cross. The Lord does not afflict us in order to break us down or discourage us. Rather, he is cutting away the cancer of our sin. He is burning away the dross of the old man, the old man who was crucified with Christ. Lamentations 3 continues, beginning in verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. 
But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart the children of man or grieve the children of men. Brothers and sisters, we can have hope in the God of hope. Because even in our darkest moments, we can trust that he is at work. He does not afflict us from his heart, but disciplines us for our good. The rest of that verse, Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Would you pray with me? Father God, would you give us that kind of eternal perspective? That, that sees every difficulty and trial you bring into our lives as an opportunity to grow in your grace, to lean on you. Help us even, you know, even Jeremiah spent five chapters pouring out the sorrows of his soul to you. He did not hide those things. He didn't pretend like he felt great. But yet in the midst of that, he could anchor his soul in knowing of your goodness and your faithfulness. Lord, would you help us, even in the midst of the deepest, darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, to fear no evil, knowing that you, in fact, are with us, whether we can see you or not. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.